Good evening and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland at the Happy Dog. I'm Stephanie Jansky. the Director of Programming and a proud member. I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, former presidential speechwriter and author of Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, Mr. David Litt. In March of 2015, President Obama, in keeping with tradition, delivered a City Club address. He spoke on the importance of middle class economics and many of you were probably in that room. And guess who was the one person who worked on that speech? You guessed it, our speaker today, Mr. David Litt. See, all roads do lead through the City Club. <laughs> Mr. Litt joined Obama's campaign in 2008 while an undergraduate student at Yale University. Three years later, at the age of 24, he found himself employed at the White House as the lowest ranking member of President Obama's speech writing team. And now, upon being introduced to the President, Obama mistakenly referred to him as David Lips rather than David Litt. Now, we can relate to this. Those of you who were at President Obama's address recall the moment when he thanked uh, CEO, uh, City Club CEO Don Malthrop. <laughs> All joking aside, for five years, Mr. Litt wrote speeches, starting with brief remarks on infrastructure, slowly working his way through the echelons until he was composing jokes for several White House Correspondents Association dinners as a senior speechwriter. He is probably most well known as the creator of Luther, Obama's anger translator, a, a part famously played by actor Keegan-Michael Key in 2015. Mr. Litt left the White House in 2016 and is now the head writer and producer for the comedy website Funny or Die. So what's it like writing jokes for the President of the United States? And how do you balance biting comedy with respect for the highest office in the land? Tonight, we'll find out. Engaging Mr. Litt in conversation is Brandon Cox, an associate at Tucker Ellis. Mr. Cox is a graduate of Georgetown University and CSU's Cleveland Marshall College of Law, and he serves as the first vice president of the Norman S. Minor Bar Association. With that, let's begin. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, I was talking to David about uh, being in Cleveland. Welcome to our awesome city. Uh, a lot of great things will be going on tonight, including this conversation. <laughs> so we uh, appreciate you coming into town. Uh, I wanted to start off, we heard from Stephanie um, this, uh, this concept of you being a 24-year-old in the White House as a speechwriter on, on, on President Obama's speechwriting team. Tell us what it felt like in that moment to be one of the coolest people around. Uh, well, well, I don't know whether this is a matter of uh, temperament or um, perspective. I, it's always hard to tell. Uh, I certainly didn't feel like one of the coolest people around. Um, I, so I, and actually I do want to just back up and say how uh, much I appreciate you all having me in Cleveland. So I, um, as Stephanie said, the last time I was here was for the City Club event. Uh, there were a lot more people at President Obama's, but there was a lot less beer, so I feel like <laughs> things are evening out. Um, and also the, the fact that you, you sort of made me sit through one of these pronunciation flashbacks. Because if President Obama mispronounced a name, that was my fault. Uh, so we used to have to, in the, in the brackets, you would say, you know, you would have a name, and then, uh, it would, then you'd have the phonetics. But sometimes phonetics turn out to be very, very difficult. You know, when you, when you start a job at the White House as a speechwriter, um, going to, toward what you're saying, you know, you, you walk in for the first time, or as I certainly did, 
I was 24 years old. I sort of had the West Wing theme song playing in my head. <laughs> and you think about writing, you know, these these amazing lines. Ask not what you can, uh, what your country can do for you, uh, but you spend a lot more time than you think, kind of thinking about, okay, well, how do I make it clear that B O W does that rhyme with bow or does it rhyme with bow, uh, or you know, how is that pronounced? And sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you really don't. Um, and it really is, uh, you know, the the thing that I've found all speakers agree on is that they really don't like mispronouncing people's names. So, um, you know, that was always one of the things we tried not to get right. Turns out I didn't, um, <laughs> but we're still here. And uh, But for me, you know, I started at the White House when I was 24, and I felt like in some ways this was a dream job, but in some ways it was also absolutely terrifying. The way I talk about it in the book was that I felt like Cinderella at the ball, but also Cinderella before the ball. Um, you know, it, in, it, it, it was, uh, it took me six weeks to stop dreaming about work and not in good ways. Um, you know, every night I would sort of have a dream and I would go through the day and then the day ahead and kind of run through all the things that could go wrong. And then I'd wake up and not feel at all refreshed and then go back into work. And I would talk to colleagues as they started and every so often someone would say, so is it like weird to dream about work all the time? And I'd say, give it six weeks. And um, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I wanted to try to capture both sides of that element of working at the White House. It was extraordinary. I mean, the fact just to, to you know, I used to walk by the White House when I first moved to D.C. and think, I can't believe Barack Obama lives there and I get to walk by the gate. This is amazing. Um, so the fact that they would let me in seemed absolutely insane. And then at the same time, it was also really hard work. And I wanted to try, and it wasn't, um, it didn't feel easy just because I thought what we were doing was right. Uh, those, th those things don't always go together. And I wanted to try to capture both of those things. So walk us through your, uh, your headspace when you are given an assignment. What is the process by which you uh, uh, undergo before you begin to put pen to paper and uh, tell us about one of the uh, most uh, enlightening experiences in terms of uh, one of the speeches that you wrote? So the, the process for White House speech writing really depends. It depends on the administration, but it also, within the Obama administration, depended a lot on the speech. For a typical speech, we'd have about a week. And the chief speechwriter, who is John Favreau, um, who I'm sure many of you know from his podcast, uh, er, in the first term, and then Cody Keenan in the second term, they would assign the speeches. And then you would try to meet with policy experts. And policy experts are, you know, these are people who have spent 20, 25 years knowing everything there is to know about a subject. And then they get to meet with you, who has, like, Googled it. Uh, <laughs> and... We all pretend that this is gonna, you know, this this is not gonna waste their time. Um, but it, it's uh, to some extent being a speechwriter is um, you're the token ignoramus, and I don't mean that in a bad way entirely. Your your job is to be a proxy for an audience that doesn't that isn't thinking about this all the time. So um, one of the the more illustrative experiences for me at the White House was actually uh, in 2013, one of my first speeches when I became a full-time presidential speechwriter was about infrastructure investment. And infrastructure investment is not an interesting subject. Um, it's an important subject, but it is just not interesting. And I decided I really wanted to get it right, and so I really dove into infrastructure investment. It was the kind of thing I probably should have spent four years doing in college, uh, but didn't. 
and I made up for, for lost time and did all the reading and really got to know the subject and thought infrastructure investment actually turns out to be amazing. And that's probably the part where I should have said, okay, that's a warning sign. Um, if I think that infrastructure investment is incredibly fun, I'm no longer relatable to people who are going to be watching this speech. <laughs> and so the speech that I wrote was very detailed, had all the most fun things about infrastructure investment, uh, and was totally unreadable. And, and my boss, Cody, basically uh, blew it up, which, which is the, what we called it when a speech comes back and it was just covered in digital red ink. And it, what he did was make it much more about the values behind it or the, the big ideas that we could all agree on behind it rather than the details. And so one of the things I learned through that process is you're always balancing. On one hand, your job is to uh, think about how to convey a piece of information that people don't have. But on the other hand, if you start to become the expert, then you, you lose the perspective that you bring to the table as a speechwriter. Uh, the infrastructure speech, you talk about that in your um, in your book, and I think that was the one that was took place maybe after the Kenya speech. Mm -hmm. um, and what I appreciated about your remarks, uh, particularly as it relates to the um, the Kenya speech, was that uh, it was almost one of those moments where you recognize that, okay, a mistake had happened, uh, and how do you learn from that, especially when you're in that position where you are, uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, this person who is um, making sure that the president is saying things that are accurate and truthful, and sometimes that's not always the, the way that it goes now. So what did you learn from that experience? Um, I, I, I think w it, is, it is strange to me. I mean, I, I started writing this book uh, in 2016 before the election, but then finished it and, and then have sort of toured to talk about it afterward. And it is strange how many just very normal statements become subtweets by accident. Um, but the uh, what, what I learned from that, and, and just to, to back up a little bit, one of the things that um, Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for Reagan and wrote a really good White House memoir uh, called What I Saw at the Revolution, she once said that every White House book could be subtitled, They Should Have Listened to Me. Uh, which is mostly true, but I, I decided to try to wh write a White House book about all the times that people should not have listened to me, and, and usually they didn't, so, um, I'm, and I'm glad they didn't. And uh, it, this was probably the, the uh, time when people really shouldn't have listened to me the most. So I, uh, I had this uh, speech to write. It was mostly jokes, actually. It was for something called the Gridiron Dinner, which is this uh, dinner is a joke monologue for grouchy print journalists in Washington. And at the end of it, I wrote, um, uh, journalists have risked everything to bring us stories from countries like Syria and Kenya, stories that needed to be told. And I thought this line was great. I used Syria, obviously, because it's a very dangerous place, especially for journalists, and you know the, it's run by this evil regime. And then I used Kenya because it sounds like Syria. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds, you know, that's, I'm the speechwriter. They got the Syria ends in a yes sound. Kenya ends in a yes sound. This is going to, what could go wrong? Um, and so I didn't bother running it by foreign policy because, like, I'm the speechwriter. I don't need someone to tell me about yes sounds. I know how that works. <laughs> and I ended up leaving it in the speech, and the president said it, and it sounded good. He got a round of applause. And then the next day... Uh, the lead headline in the Daily Nation, which is the largest newspaper uh, out of Nairobi, 
said, um, Kenya not safe for foreign journalists, says Obama. <laughs> and then things really snowballed very quickly. And one of the things I learned through that experience was that having the ability to uh, start an international incident does not mean you have the ability to stop one. <laughs> and so I uh, was sort of watching this happen to me um, and, you know, also to the country. And, uh, and, and, and I remember thinking, you know, I wish there was someone I could just call uh, at the, you know, just some, some person at the Kenyan embassy to say, like, I know you think you're mad at the United States, but really you're just mad at me. Like, can't I just apologize? You know, you can tell me about the time you confused, like, Paraguay and Uruguay, and <laughs> we'll just, we'll, we'll laugh about this. And there was no one to call, and so uh, the White House, it was, an, it was an, 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 a background, um, but a senior White House official uh, said, gave a statement that uh, sort of apologized for the comparison, Kenya and Syria, and said, obviously the situations in Syria and Kenya are very different, um, which is White House official speak for, obviously David is an idiot. <laughs> Um, and one of the things that I feel like I learned from that and that I, I, I did try to capture in the book is how hard it is to get those little things right even when, um, you know, I worked with people who were very good at their jobs. Um, you know, I was, as you'll know if you've read the book um, or if you read it, uh, I was not perfect at my job, but I was, like, good enough at my job that I didn't get fired. Um, <laughs> but it was still, it is really hard to not make mistakes. And I feel like I left the White House with much more of an appreciation for the ability to just go through your day and not make a mistake as opposed to people who are, you know, I think when I got there, I was thinking the, the real quality that matters in government is brilliance. And brilliance is nice, um, but that ability to consistently do your job turns out to be much more important than that. Um, and what I found at the White House was uh, those things ha could happen once, and you could learn from your mistake, but you also have to learn very quickly, because usually if you, you know, start a second international incident, that's, th that establishes a pattern, and that's not going to work out for you. <laughs> Uh, so Stephanie mentioned this in the opening remarks, and uh, it's also in your book how uh, President Obama uh, mispronounced your uh, name, called you Lips versus Lit. Uh, but I mean, it's President Obama, right? So what, what was your thought process even in that moment when it's, it, do you correct him? What, like, what do you do? Well, I mean, what I thought was, okay, I guess I'm Lips now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I did, certainly didn't think of saying, you know, Mr. President, I know you have important life or death uh, issues to deal with every day, but let's stop everything and talk about what really matters, which is how we pronounce my name. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, uh, and also I will say, as a White House staffer, um, certainly someone who was entering it, you know, not a high level in the administration, and this was a big moment for me, that the President of the United States referred to me by name. Um, it wasn't my name. <laughs> But I felt like it wasn't really worth getting all nitpicky about that. So, uh, and um, eventually he did, he did learn my name, which I have to say I always found even more surprising. To some extent, I was a little surprised when the president mispronounced my name. But then for the next few years, if he would say, oh, Lit, how you doing? Uh, I would find it very, very strange because it's like, this is the president. I don't think he's supposed to know who I am. Um, so, you know, I think it was surreal. Uh, it ended up being sur sort of surreal coming and going. Uh, one of the things that I, I found amazing and fascinating about President Obama, uh, particularly with respect to public speeches, uh, he had this wit and 
about him. And I'm wondering whether a lot of that, if you think a lot of that was very natural or was that a product of many of you all in terms of how you wrote the speeches to sort of infuse that wit into his speeches? Um, I, I think any speechwriter who's good at their job is trying to uh, kind of amplify the best parts of the person they're writing for. So in President Obama's case, you know, we would sometimes write in uh, a, a joke or in a more serious speech, not even a joke. I'm actually remembering um, at the, you know, try, just trying to think about little, little things that kind of get the audience's attention or get people laughing. But that's not because we were brilliant writers. It's because President Obama is naturally a very funny person. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I think about um, the last time I actually I saw him was in the Oval Office in 2016. I had left the White House. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Um, but uh, so I, I, I got to do something called the departure photo, where you bring your family to the Oval and take a picture with the president. And President Obama uh, asked me during this, he said, well, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm trying to write a self-deprecating White House memoir. <laughs> and without missing a beat, he just looked at me and went, oh, that seems like a contradiction, and just moved on. <laughs> and so he was very, very quick on his feet and very yeah. good at getting to that kernel of truth um, that is both a joke and not a joke simultaneously. And I think you could see that in his speeches and then also, um, you know, I think his, his staff, myself included, saw it in the way that he'd interact with people. Can you tell us about a time that you can remember, if it happened at all, where uh, President Obama sort of went off script and uh, what that was like, what the impact of him doing that uh, was, and, and particularly in consideration of this particular climate where that seems to happen pretty regularly. And I'm just curious to know if that was a regular occurrence of his or if that's just uh, something that's unique to individuals uh, like our current administration. Well, so, so it's interesting. I think different political leaders have different uh, attitudes toward a prepared text. So um, I, th I think it was Senator Muskie from Maine, if I'm remembering this right, somebody in the 70s, they would have a, a habit. They would walk up to the podium, and they would take a sheaf of paper out of their pocket, and they would say, my speechwriters wrote something for me, but I'm not going to use it. And then they'd rip it up. And then uh, that person, he would deliver the exact same speech from memory that his speech writers had written. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Uh, and then um, what's interesting is, because you were talking about going off script, I actually think I saw President Trump do that. But then I, I think he act, it's not like he remembered what was on the paper. He actually did that. So there almost wasn't a, so there was, it wasn't a script. Um, it was just stream of consciousness. That, I think, is good. Then you have someone like Vice President Biden, who's a very warm, he's a great speaker. I was a, when I was a field organizer in, in Worcester um, in t the 2008 campaign, he came and did a rally for about 4,000 people, and I remember just how great he was, not just with the crowd, but how much time he spent with every one of the volunteers we had meet him. Um, but, you know, he would give the teleprompter operators a heart attack because he would just go off and, you know, if he, if his speech was, you know, 10 minutes on paper that had no bearing on how long the speech was actually. <laughs> um, and then President Obama wouldn't, uh, he wasn't afraid to ad-lib, but particularly in the first term, I think he understood the value of sticking with the script because anything you say, even if it's technically true, 
if it's not phrased right, it could be used in an attack ad, especially if there's video. So there's, there's a value, I mean, thinking about the current administration, whoever the Democrat is who runs in 2020, is gonna, their challenge is going to be, how do we pick from the amount of incriminating tape? Um, and how do we focus on just, the, just a few pieces, because there's so much of it. Um, but trying not to generate that sort of tape it is important, or, or traditionally has been important for, for presidents. And then the other thing that I saw from President Obama, he would ad-lib in the second term more and more. And sometimes he would, because he had given so many speeches by the time the second term rolled around, that if he didn't like something exactly, he'd say, I'll just figure it out. And he could do that. Um, a lot of people, a lot of uh, politicians in Washington, I think, think they can do that, and often they can't. Um, with President Obama, usually the part he just made up would be the part where all of my friends would say, like, did you write that? And I'd say, well, I, you know, I worked on the speech. <laughs> I just hope they didn't ask follow-up. Uh, but, but there were also, um, just on the subject of ad-libs, I mean, there were two moments, they weren't serious, they were jokes that stand out to me. There was the part in the State of the Union in 2015 where he said, um, you know, I've run my last race, and the Republicans all started cheering, and President Obama said, I know because I won both of them. <laughs> and that second part was not in the script at all. Um, I don't think anyone expected, to, to be frank, that the Republicans would start cheering for that in the middle of the speech. It seemed a little, I don't know, a little gauche. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, that, so that was, I think, one of the, uh, at least for me, one of the most defining moments of that speech. It was totally on the fly. Or um, there was the year, I don't know if you all remember Cliven Bundy. This is really, uh, uh, <laughs> we have some real Cliven Bundy fans. <laughs> but so the, the rancher from Nevada who got in a whole standoff with the Bureau of Land Management, and then uh, he was sort of a conservative hero, and then it turned out he was racist, and at the time that was a problem. And so, but so, the, the president made a joke about him that was relatively tame uh, about at, at the correspondence center, and then you sort of saw this thing happen in his head. He's like, should I go for it? I'll go for it. And then he went on a pretty long run about, uh, you know, it was like, it was, it, I, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was basically about um, how things were not going to end well if you begin a sentence using the word, let me tell you something I know about the Negro, which Bonnie Bundy had said. Uh, and I feel weird saying now, but I'm quoting. And, but the, but it, you wouldn't be able to distinguish it. The people in the room could not distinguish it from that, uh, from what was written down. I'm sorry there's such a long answer, but those were both, to me, very fun moments. No, it's great. And, and it, that helps me to transition into another topic that I want to talk about, which is just social media. So, um, and I'm reading from your book, and it's in the, uh, the cover portion, but remember when presidents spoke in complete sentences instead of in unhinged tweets? Talk to us a little bit about what it must be like to, uh, in this particular administration, particularly with respect to the use of social media tweets and things of that nature. So as a speechwriter, someone who takes pride in researching and crafting the right words, what is your thought process when you see these tweets in the morning or what have you? And, and how, what are you thinking as it relates to the team of people who must be back at the old Oval Office? Um, well, I, I think that when it comes to President Trump's tweets, uh, my reaction to them is not as a speechwriter. It's probably similar to most people's, and it's just as a human. Um, I, I think one of the or, or difficult things about this particular moment politically 
is trying to separate what makes sense and what is part of a trend that is either good or inexorable or both um, from just what is completely crazy and terrible or both. And in this case, I think it's very hard because on one hand, using social media more, um, no matter who the president was, that person was going to do that. I actually think the Trump campaign, I didn't like the kind of campaign they were running, but I thought their, the way they embraced Facebook made more sense um, for the moment that we're in now. And it was interesting to see them almost try to develop a campaign from scratch. And so you would logically say, yeah, let's use a lot of Facebook. People use a lot of Facebook. Um, Twitter, I think, is uniquely suited to Donald Trump. So I don't think that uh, uh, if Hillary Clinton were president, I don't think she would be tweeting at 6 a.m. But one of the things that I, I think would will be happening with whoever is the next president, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, is that they will use Twitter and things like it, and they will have to carry on some sort of conversation with the American people that doesn't happen in one-week increments or even you know once a day, but is happening throughout the day. It might happen more on the staff level. So I could see people doing something closer to what we did in the White House where President Obama wasn't sitting there writing his own tweets. Um, you know, when he was on Marine One, he was getting briefed by staff or he was doing other things. He wasn't tweeting. But um, you could have you know, staff doing that throughout the day. And you could, ha you could see people – and my guess is the next president would still write their own tweets more than Barack Obama did just because that's the direction that I think we're heading, right. which is just going to make sense. Um, I will also say when it comes to the, the uh, tweets from the president that when I see the, these, one of the things that keeps me optimistic and keeps me sane in this particular time is that most people, Democrats and Republicans, don't view this as a good thing. Um, it's, not, it's not so much the frequency of the tweeting, but the content and the sort of chaos that ensues. And people, Republicans included, inclu and this includes Republicans who support President Trump's policies, say, okay, I'm all for the tax bill, or even, you know, I, I support what you're doing on immigration, but this is not a good way to go about it. And so I'm happy to see that, for the most part, in, in a country where we have trouble agreeing on things right now, that's something we can agree on. Yeah. So just a reminder to the audience, we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, I have one last question, then we'll open it up. So just come up to the mic and uh, ask your question, and we'll continue the conversation with David. Um, so you mentioned that you uh, left the White House in 2016. Uh, looking back on your experience in the White House, is there anything that you would have done differently? And if so, what? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I think looking back on it, well, one thing I would have definitely done differently is it was very nice when I was 25 years old to be able to call anyone on the planet and have them return my call. And I think I naively was like, oh, I'm sure that'll happen in the future. Um, and, and I did get to meet some extraordinary people and I got to work with, with people um, who I admire tremendously and who I had no business working with except that I had a cool looking business card. Um, but I wish I had done that even more because it turns out that doesn't happen a lot in one's life. Um, and I also... You know, I'm trying to think about uh, – there's specific speeches I go back to and say I really wish that I had done be a better job on that. Um, but I think that that ends up being true with most jobs. And one of the things that, for me was that it was important to leave before I started to think, well, here's how I didn't do this right. Because it does happen even in an amazing job, even if you believe in what you're doing. I saw this happen to some friends of mine at the White House where they just left a little too late. And when that happens – it really is, um, you know, it's, it's just too bad to, 
to see someone go from having their dream job to just watching it wear them down. And so I, I, I feel um, pretty lucky that I left and was able to leave at a time when I still loved my job. So, I, you know, looking back on it, uh, there's not a ton of things I regret about what I could have done. I mean, you know, I also left in January 2016, which was like the last time, uh, you know, it was a year before the uh, presidential transition. And I think it was basically the last time anyone left the White House and felt totally okay about it. I didn't mean to do that, but it just worked out that way. So, I, yeah, I got lucky in that sense. My, my colleagues were not so lucky. Do we have any questions from the audience? Just come on up. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of Obama's anger interpreter? <laughs> um, sure. So, uh, so Luther Obama's anger translator. This was a, a, char a character that um, uh, Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele and their writers had come up with for their show Key and Peele, which I'm sure um, some of you saw. Uh, and President Obama was a fan of this character. So, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, the premise was that Jordan Peele would uh, do his Obama impersonation, and he would be very cool, calm, and collected. And then Keegan, as Luther, uh, would translate and yell about all the stuff that America was putting him through. And um, for reasons you might be able to guess, President Obama really liked this concept. <laughs> and so we had always thought about getting it on stage, and then finally in 2015, it was it just everything fell into place where it made sense to do it. And to me, the in addition to the performance itself, the thing that I will never forget is watching President Obama try and utterly fail not to laugh during the rehearsal, um, where you know every time Keegan said anything, he would just lose it because it was so funny, and uh, you know not laughing during the actual thing is not one of President Obama's biggest accomplishments, but I still think it's very impressive. So, um. uh, getting away from the substantive, but looking at Trump's tweets. And relating back to uh, Roosevelt's fireside chats, which are a little bit before my time, that uh, both of these are an attempt to leapfrog over the Congress and the political establishment and make direct contact with the American people. Would you care to comment on that aspect of it? Sure. You know, I think the, the catchphrase that we tended to use in the Obama administration was meet people where they are or meet people where they live. And I think that is both something that every administration tries to do, and, and frankly, every administration should try to do. Um, you know, President Obama appeared on Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis to talk about his health care law. Um, he did a BuzzFeed video the next year or the year after to talk about the health care law. I mean, we, we did a lot of these things. He did comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, um, where to me, I think that was actually fun because there wasn't a policy element to it, but it was probably the closest most Americans, I think, got to seeing what President Obama sounded like and, and his sense of humor just as a human being rather than, you know, in a formal setting. So I don't fault the Trump administration for uh, trying to circumvent the press um, in that way, and I don't fault them for trying to communicate with people the, the way that people are communicating. I, I think it's the content more than the, the medium that is uh, a little troubling. Hi. Just a, a quick process question, not to, I hope it's not boring, but um, 
you know, I worked for years for a bank, and I would write speeches for the CEO and a lot of the stuff I knew, but I would go to him for new points, what did he want to do, what did he want to add to it, so on and so forth. What was your access like? What was it like to create a speech from nothing? And, and did you have access to him, or how, how did it work? So access for a speechwriting team like the one we had really depended on the speech. The chief speechwriter um, spent a pretty good amount of time with the president, you know, a couple of times a week at the very least meeting with, with the president. For the rest of us, um, we would either – usually we would meet with the president in one of two cases. So either something very new was being discussed. So, for example, um, uh, you know, a policy issue that had just come up or, or a eulogy or some, something that happened where we didn't have any background on what the president thought about it. And sometimes these things overlapped. The other issue is if it was something that was very personally important to President Obama, where he felt like his own um, – there, there were things he was going to add that there's just no way a speechwriter who didn't have his background and experience and life could add. Um, and then, it, oddly, jokes ended up being one of the places where we spent the most time with the president because jokes have to be so precise as opposed to most other speeches where the wrong word or – um, you know, a comma in the wrong place can completely kill a joke. And so those were things where we would go over uh, the, the monologue for the Correspondence Center with the president a couple of times. Most of the, the rest of the time, let's say I was doing an education policy speech or when I was doing, um, working on the speech that President Obama gave at the City Club, uh, that was the kind of speech where I would go back and I would look at other things he had said for the, the City Club, let's say about the budget. And I would talk to people who knew the the issue better than I did, um, but for the most part, he had give he had talked so much about the economy. It wasn't that we needed uh, to go in there and say, "Mr. President, what do you think about the economy?" Because he had already said it, and it was all online and it was all easily searchable. And even um, little details that are very hard if you're writing speeches for a CEO. But you know, if I wanted to know what whether President Obama ever ate yogurt, I could figure that out fairly quickly on LexisNexis. I don't know why that would come up, but if I did, I could do it. And so uh, we were lucky in that respect where you could – you had access some of the time, but then some of the time when you didn't because the president was busy being the president, you could still uh, almost get the same results as if you were able to go into the room and say, you know, Mr. President, how do you feel about yogurt? So my first comment is that what Trump needs is a reverse translator telling us what he is thinking, not what he's saying. That's my first comment. Um, my question actually has to do with – how do you think um, speechwriters right now reconcile their integrity with using alternate, having to put in alternative facts? Like, I don't know who writes Sarah Huckabee Sanders stuff, but you gotta think that some of this stuff would just stick in your craw and you just couldn't get it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't think that people are reconciling their integrity, because it implies Cause there's integrity to reconcile. Um, and I, I don't, and I will say, and I think this is important, that I, do, I don't think that that would be true of any, this is not, obviously I'm a Democrat, you know, sort of semi-professional Democrat, depending on the context. Um, but I don't think that that would be true in a Marco Rubio administration or even in a Ted Cruz administration, where I'm sure I would not be liking what's happening, but I would feel very differently about what does it say about the character of someone who, who does that work. Um, you know, I think that there's, 
there's a comfort. You have to decide at a certain point uh, either that you don't care about lies or that lies and truth don't really exist if you're going to work for someone like a Donald Trump. And it's not just exclusively Donald Trump. He just happens to be by far the most famous person sort of uh, applying that theory at the moment. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think that at that point you've made that either, you know, that moral compromise. And if you're not that kind of person, you're probably, you already have a different kind of job. I was wondering what you thought of the correspondence dinner, Michelle Wolf. Yeah, apparently the internet had feelings about it. Uh, so, I so just thinking through it, um, the so the correspondence. I assume most people by now have heard, either seen some things that Michelle Wolf said or seen things about the things that Michelle Wolf said. I think it is a very very strange event. It's always been a strange event. Let's back up for a second. It is really weird that we have an event where the President of the United States, by tradition, shows up in front of the press and does amateur night, uh, <laughs> sort of about the things that they're dealing with in real life, but sort of not, and sort of about the press, but sort of not. So even in the good old days, uh, this was a very strange event. And, th and there were real questions about the whether it is bringing the press and the people who they cover too close together. And I think you could argue it both ways. Um, I certainly enjoyed being part of it, and I think it's valuable. But I, I think the real value of the Correspondence Center lies in having the President of the United States say something in public to the press about how valuable a free press is. And so I think when you have, a, have an event where it's an event celebrating the free press and simultaneously the most important person in the country is talking about how terrible the free press is or how terrible reporters are, your event, no, there's a weird cognitive dissonance that, that I think was already present. Oh, sorry, not present. Maybe both. Um, but th there's this cognitive dissonance that was present in the night before anybody started speaking. And I think it was even more strange because this year, President Trump, wisely from a tactical perspective, sent his staff. So you had the staff being treated like they were very uh, important and that they were. Um, kind of part, part of this civil society we've built together as, in, as the American people, and then you had the president actively tearing all that down at the same time. And I think Michelle Wolf's monologue basically said, this whole thing is really dumb. Um, and I don't know whether, I don't, I don't think it was terribly nuanced, but I think it was, I, I do think it was, she she made me realize just how absurd that moment was, and I'm I'm glad she did. Um, so without going into every individual joke, I will say when it comes to jokes, um, Joel McHale talked about Nancy Pelosi and said she had had so much plastic surgery she couldn't move her face. This was in 2014. I did not see the conservative media uh, explode in outrage. So I do think there is um, a, a strange and worrying double standard. Um, and I was happy to see progressives basically say, you know, we can be for decency and we can be for civility, um, but then we should apply that equally to everybody. Um, and also I was happy to see people say, if you're not going to spend every single day saying, how do we confront the fact that we have a president who brags about sexually assaulting women or says that he wouldn't sexually assault other women because they were too ugly for him to assault, are, are we really going to get worked up over a comedian? Um, and so I do think that was, I was happy to see people push back on that, um, which is a long way of saying I, uh, you know, I, it was a it was a very aggressive performance, but I'm glad she did it. I think in some ways it was really necessary. 
It'd be. Go ahead. No, no. You. <laughs> um, it's one of the funniest parts of your book is actually in the beginning, and it's uh, the introduction, Arugula on Air Force One. So I kind of want to know what it's like to be on Air Force One. Um, and then <laughs> one, which is just sounds really awesome. And then uh, two, one of the passages in your book, you're talking about uh, what seems to be the, the copious amount of snacks that are on uh, Air Force One. Uh, aboard the presidential aircraft, I ate stuffed pork chops and crab pretzels and giant cups of buffalo blue cheese dip that were remarkably categorized as snacks. After a last minute edit, I'd reward myself with fun-sized Twix or Snickers from the candy tray by the window. Then there were the actual desserts. Who knows how many pecan pies and strawberry parfaits, apple tarts, and brownies a la mode I polished off in service to my country. Um, well, to answer your first question, Air Force One is awesome. It seems like uh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you think. Um, and so few parts of working at the White House are like that. And so, and so much of it turns out to be like working in government, where you get to do important things, but it's not glamorous. Air Force One is, the, is just amazing. Um, the uh, and, and the food. What was interesting about Air Force One is you actually have to pay for your own food. Um, so I, I think you know my guess is you you pay sort of you 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 do get a bill. Um, you have to sign up with the Navy mess and you get an account and at the end of it every month they bill you and they say here's how many meals you ate and you know you owe us X amount and you have to pay them. Uh, you don't have to tip, or at least I hope you don't have to tip. Uh, now I feel really bad. Uh-oh. Um, but it's, it's because the meals are so uh, over the top that if, again, back when these kinds of things were scandals, this would be, I mean, the idea that, you know, you're getting these huge, delicious meals um, on the plane, you know, if the taxpayer was paying for it, it, wouldn't, it would feel weird. Um, and so the way that the that the uh, the crew you know they would come and they would every meal was just absolutely very all the food was very good and even the lighter options were like you know a salad but we've covered it in bacon and cheese and then another layer of bacon and um, and and uh, one time we went to Kansas City and the the Air Force One crew bought like. 1600 bucks worth of barbecue and then just we just had like barbecue on Air Force One I was like this is it like this is as good as it gets um, so it was uh, and, and I think to um, you know for me like writing about the White House uh, some of it was I wanted to write about high-minded things and some of it I wanted to just write about you know here's the best free food opportunities yeah. or you know dis discounted, discounted food yeah exactly <laughs> especially if you don't tip apparently um, before the question, you do need to tip here, so so <laughs> do please tip. Um, at the start, you talked about uh, when you wrote that first infrastructure speech, you you sort of studied too much and you you got inside the bubble of of infrastructure, so it was less relatable. And and there's value to not being an expert on the things you're writing about. Um, how did you deal with, um, once you're traveling on Air Force One and you're inside sort of a Washington bubble and you're around Washington people a lot of the time, how did you deal with still being able to write in a way that allowed the president to reach people who were not part of that Washington bubble? Um, I, I think it is very hard to get outside of your own head, get outside of your own environment, um, and I don't know that we always did it successfully. I would say when we did it successfully, when we were able to get outside that Washington bubble, the, 
the biggest challenge was finding stories of you know what we called real people, which is um, basically anybody who didn't live in D.C. and doesn't work for government. So you're all real people. Um, I guess now I'm also a real people, or at least at least while I'm here, when I I still live in D.C. So who knows? Um, but we would try hard to figure out uh, whose personal story can kind of serve as a proxy for the American story or serve as a way of talking about this issue. And one of my favorite parts about being a speechwriter, and I think it's harder for policy people because you don't have an excuse to call up somebody in Ohio or call up someone in Wisconsin or wherever we were going. Um, but one of my favorite parts of being a speechwriter was, you know, being able to talk to, I think I was in, I think I was, it was here that we did an event at a, um, at a steel mill and to be able to talk to someone who's working at the steel mill and talking about how they've just added a shift and what that means and so on. Or, you know, um, to be able to go on trips and see some of the things that are happening. I mean, I remember we went to a, uh, we went to a startup incubator here that was sort of a manufacturing incubator. And I remember this very clearly because they had, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's like in, maybe it's at this bar, I don't know, but somebody had come up with a process for um, speeding up how to make bourbon yeah, Cleveland whiskey. Um, and so I remember that one very well. Uh, but, um, but I mean, so you got to meet all these incredible people. And that, that was an amazing experience, just to be able to call someone and say, hi, I'm calling from the White House. And by the way, almost nobody ever said, like, you really? You're calling from the White House? Like, I would call up people. Sometimes I'd ask for their Social Security numbers, because if they were going to do an event with the president or they were going to go to the White House, they would, they would actually, you know, have to go through a background check. And uh, most of the time, people would just give me their social security numbers. It was really weird. There was one time I called somebody, well, you know, somebody with an inspiring story, and I said, hi, I'm David. I'm calling from the White House. And she said, prove it. And I was like, thank you. Um, and so I had to have her look up my, uh, my salary, which was on the congressional website, and say, you can, you can find me. But, um, but that was actually one of the best parts about it was the, the chance to, uh, because we were tasked with that, you know, getting outside the D.C. bubble, um, and and getting to read letters and talk to people. There's what, that's one of the things, actually, to go back to what you're saying, yeah. uh, that's one of the things I actually miss. In some ways, I got more perspective when I was there than now. So this is a perfect segue for my question. Um, I was one of those individuals who got a call from the White House. Um, I did not ask if it was serious. But take us back to 2015. The City Club had about five days uh, to prepare for President Obama's speech. We typically have two to three to four months for a speaker. So. Um, we know it was on our side. What was it like for you, and how long did you have to write that speech? Did you have more time or less time? Was the topic always middle-class economics? I'm, I'm curious about what that was like on your end. I don't remember specifically, you know, the, I don't remember the background of writing that speech. Um, what I remember about it, so the things I remember about it that are interesting, I mean, I, we probably had about the same week that we normally had, um, and, and we had an amazing advanced staff, so they could show up you know, a week out or sometimes even less and put together a, a really well-run presidential event with the help of a venue um, and an organization like the City Club. But sometimes they were not working with a you know, established organization and they would just show up and put together this in, kind of made-for-TV and also made-for-live consumption event in, at a moment's notice. It was really amazing. Um, what I remember about the City Club was that that speech got chopped up I don't think by us actually, but by by other sites on and and turned into a one and a half minute Facebook video, where the president was sort of saying, "Here's the predictions that people made about what my economic policies would do, and here's what actually happened," 
and that was a you know he spoke for 20, 20 minutes maybe, but they took the that one and a half minutes and that did very well online. So that to me wasn't just an example of the kind of meeting people where they live, thinking not just about what's the whole speech, but what's the small part of the speech that someone who's only going to watch a minute and a half is going to see. Um, and the other thing I remember is that uh, maybe some of you remember this from being there. Somebody asked him, said, "I'm 17 years old and I want to run for public office, and uh, what should I know?" And the the first thing that he said was, "You got to remember that if you're running for public office, you got to go to a lot of chicken dinners, and sometimes the chicken's not that good." <laughs> and uh, and that really stuck with. I feel like there was every so often you got windows into not just the president but also the person behind you know the the person who was serving as president. And I feel like that that was one of those moments when the whole audience sort of got to hear that. Um, but yeah, I imagine that was hard to put together. Uh, so I do want to talk a little bit about your uh, current role. How did the uh, your role as a speechwriter in the White House uh, prepare you for this current role, and what are some of the differences that you find uh, enjoyable about it that may not have been the way that it was when you were in the White House? So uh, I left the White House in 2016, and I sort of knew that my main um, my main goal was to not be doing what I had been doing at the White House because I had talked to I, I, one of the great things about being at the White House actually was you're surrounded by some of the most successful people on the planet not now. <laughs> at at the time and so I did kind of a a tour where I just got to talk to you know all these really fascinating people. Um, who were nice enough to make 20 minutes for me. And then basically I said, well, what's a good piece of life advice you have? Or what do you think about just building the kind of career in life that actually you, you're, you know, you're excited about and proud of? And um, one of the things that I heard over and over was, if you're doing the same thing over again, you're going to wonder why you left. So I wanted to do something different. I also felt like I wanted to... Uh, um, make a, the opposite of a trade that you make as a speechwriter. So as a speechwriter, you're trading, um, you're trading audience uh, for authorship. So on one hand, uh, you know, when President Obama would say something that I wrote, um, by immense orders of magnitude, more people would care about it than if I said it. Um, you know, as evidenced by the fact that we're in a, a hot dog restaurant now and we're... Uh, <laughs> You know, se several million people watched video of his speech. Really good, yes. I, I will say, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to guess, but I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, if President Obama was like, oh yeah, the hot dog restaurant sounds good. So I'm not complaining, but it is, you, you, there's just a huge difference. The flip side of that is that, you know, if you're a writer, there is something very satisfying about writing your own work and getting to say, what do I sound like? And so I wanted to do that. Um, and then I, uh, Funny or Die um, was opening an office in D.C., and or they had just opened one, and they wanted somebody who could kind of translate between Hollywood and L.A., and they understood that I was writing a book and thinking about writing a TV show and doing all these other things. And so for me, um, you know, I went from working in the White House to working from home basically for myself, and uh, I think in some ways that's been – there's been moments when it is very strange because I – have this sense of like, where, what was I doing three years ago? This is very different. Um, but it was also, it's been exciting for the same reason, because for me, this is just a whole new set of things to learn. 
has there ever been a, a speech that you had to write that you um, disagreed with the, the the topic, the content, uh, the subject matter? I, I I get asked that question a lot. I wrote speeches in the private sector before I worked in the White House, and sometimes we'd have speeches that I that came up that I didn't agree with or felt a little uneasy about. Um, generally speaking, if somebody really disagrees on an issue, they're not going to write a good speech about it. So it doesn't come up for speechwriters that often. Um, at the White House, it didn't. I sometimes didn't agree on the tactics we would use to make an argument. You know, if I was sitting down and saying, "How would I want to do this?" I'm not sure that it would have every single time matched up 100% with the way that the chief speechwriter and the communications director and then the president, the way they all wanted to do it. Frequently, I would say, "Here's how we should do it," just to myself. And then the president would do it one way, and I would say, oh, I'm glad he did it that way. So, um, but, you know, I, there were moments when I would think about constructing an argument. The speech I really, the issue that I feel very guilty about is that I wrote a speech in, I think, 2014 about the switch to the credit cards with the chips in them. And I wrote about how great this was going to be. And every time I find myself sitting at one of those credit card readers <laughs> where you stick the chip into the card, into the reader, and then you wait for about an hour and a half and you, you just see a series of like dots moving across the screen and you wonder what on earth is happening. Like, is somebody actually walking over to a bank with your credit card to enter the information? So anyway, when that happens, I feel very guilty. I feel like I let my country down. Um, but the fact that that was the worst uh, was probably a good sign. Uh, we're... Okay, yeah. on that note. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Tonight, we've been enjoying a city club forum at the Happy Dog with former presidential speechwriter and author of Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, Mr. David Litt. And leading the conversation is Tucker Ellis associate Brandon Cox. Mr. Litt appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to many of you here today for your support of the City Club through that grant. The sale of Mr. Litt's book is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, David, and thank you, Brandon. And with the help of David, will you help us adjourn this forum by ringing the gong? You get to ring the gong. <laughs> yes. Good job, man.